anyone, can we speak humanly, but anyone who would have come forward and said, have mercy on us, God would have shown them mercy. And therefore, the God of the Old Testament is not a bloodthirsty tyrant who is out to massacre anyone and everyone. No, he is a God who is rich in mercy, even to Canaanites, even to Canaanite prostitutes. Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 77, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thanks for tuning in. I'm joined once more by Old Testament professor, Reverend Mark Vanderhart, here now to address another tough issue of scripture, that being the violence of the conquest of Canaan. Take a listen to our conversation. Well, Reverend Vanderhart, when it comes to the conquest of Canaan, particularly as it's recorded for us in the book of Joshua, questions may abound from both critics of divine revelation, but even, you know, from those in the church who um, just seek to plumb the depths of God's word even more. And these questions arise due to the context of what's going on with the nation of Israel at this point. Uh, We've seen before that God has brought them out of Egypt. Moses has died. Joshua is now commissioned by God to lead Israel into the promised land by conquering it. And we see this build up in the beginning of the book, leading to the conquest and destruction of Jericho. And then you read this verse in chapter 6. This is verse 21 of Joshua um, that some might find troubling. And it says this, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But even way before this, though, we read in Deuteronomy 20, 16, um, which uh, are the laws concerning warfare. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. I mean, compare and contrast that with Psalm 145, verse 9, which says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Surely, the critics say, uh, this isn't the same God that we read of in Deuteronomy and and Joshua, and uh, certainly not the same God we read of in the New Testament. What do you make of these accusations? The questions that are posed by people who find the conquest account troubling, the whole matter of the conquest has to be put into a broader context and a bigger picture. And what that bigger picture is could be called holy war. Now, when we think of holy war today, some people think of the, the, um, the word jihad and associate it with the extremist Muslims and it would leave a very bad taste in one's mouth. But if we take the idea of holy war just in terms of the words themselves, a war in which a holy people are engaged in conflict on behalf of a holy God, and therefore they must be holy even as their God, the Lord Yahweh, is holy, then I think we begin to understand something of what is going on in the Old Testament story. And I think the broader context has to keep the following things in mind. First of all, 
in the book of Joshua, the land of Canaan is Yahweh's land. It belongs to him. In fact, it says in the um, in the Torah that uh, Israel, they are but tenants and sojourners with the Lord. It's his land. And since he is the ultimate landowner, he can do with it whatever he pleases. The second thing that we have to keep in mind is that this land of Canaan was promised to the people that Yahweh has chosen. Uh, Abram is called out of Ur the Chaldees from Mesopotamia to go um, traveling to see a land that he had never seen before. And he eventually comes to the land of Canaan where he settles as a nomad. And uh, this will be the land that will be given to uh, his descendants. Now we see already in, in Genesis chapter 12 that the Canaanite lived in the land at that time. And that's kind of a um, proleptic and anticipatory statement of, well, okay, Abram has to live with Canaanite neighbors, but eventually Abram's children, his descendants, will get this land and therefore they will dispossess, they will displace the Canaanites who are there currently. Secondly, as I mentioned, or thirdly, uh, the Canaanites occupy it. And the nature, spiritually, of the Canaanites were that they were very wicked. Very, very wicked. Archaeologists have uncovered and, and analyzed some of the religious practices of the Canaanites, and it was the kind of religion that focused upon fertility, uh, sexuality, uh, following the superstitious beliefs of, of uh, the seasons and the spirits, the paganism of the Canaanites would have served, one could speculate, and, and some even have speculated, that their paganism would have left, led to their eventual collapse as nations and as civilizations. Now, the land of Canaan is not that large, and yet many, many nations, uh, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, Amorites, etc., they all occupy the land. And so in a very small area, these many pagan nations lived. And the text warns us, and warns Israel, I should say, that if you leave these Canaanites there, and if you allow your sons to marry their daughters, Deuteronomy 7, then eventually they will corrupt you. And then Israel will become just like one of the pagan nations. We always have to remember that in the conquest of the land, ideally it was to be a holy war. That is, Israel must separate itself, not only ceremonially, but also actually in her own ethics and in her own thought processes. She must separate herself from anything that is pagan and outside of the revelation of God, for he is a holy God. And to continue to allow pagans, even in great numbers, to live next door to you, the poisoning influence, again, we speak uh, humanly, but the poisoning influence upon the people of God would have been very real and very in intense. And in fact, the actual record is mod modestly described in Joshua, but uh, described in a very large way in the book of Judges, is that many Canaanites did stay in the land. The conquest of the land was not thorough. It was not thorough. 
They did not remove uh, Canaanites in many uh, of the areas of Canaan. And in fact, the Canaanites then began to poison the, the uh, faith and the practice of the people of God. One story, uh, just to, I mean, just to flesh that out. In Joshua 1, Joshua is given instructions on how to lead the people. He is told repeatedly, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. But his preparation for the war is to take the law of God as given to him through Moses, to read it, to talk about it, to meditate on it, and to do it. There's no discussion in Joshua chapter 1 on, strictly speaking, military preparedness. How many soldiers do you need? Do we have enough spears and, and, and um, bows and arrows and shields and that kind of thing? Do we have enough troops? There's no discussion of that whatsoever. It's Joshua 1 sounds more like Psalm 1. The man who prospers in everything that he does is the one who meditates on the law of God day and night. And his delight is in that. Furthermore, when you come to Joshua chapter 5, Israel has already crossed the Jordan River. And then when the river goes back to flooding, and before the city, the mighty city of Jericho is actually conquered, what Israel does is to, um, the men of war are circumcised. Now, from a military point of view, that is absolutely folly. You render yourself, you render your fighting force weakened. Think of what happened in Genesis 34, where the men of Shechem submit to circumcision, and then the sons of Jacob massacre them. So, the question might be raised, from a military point of view, what is Israel doing in Joshua 5? She's separating herself ceremonially through circumcision to be a people distinct to the Lord. Genesis 17 says that any male who is not circumcised will be cut off. And so if Israel is to go forward in holy war, she must be a holy people devoted to the Lord. The keeping of Passover follows after that. And in keeping Passover, Israel remembers an earlier war, so to speak. The, the victory that the Lord Yahweh had over the Egyptians. And uh, on the night of the Passover, Israel eats the ceremonial meal. She exits Egypt on dry ground. And um, then in Exodus 15, there's the song of victory. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has done uh, gloriously the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. And it says there, the Lord is a warrior. There's no mention of the armies of Israel. Yahweh is a perfectly complete fighting force in, in himself. And so, again and again, it, we see how the Lord gives victory to his people. Uh, the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites, and yet the Lord sends out his strong hand and an outstretched arm to deliver them. Back to the story of Joshua. Between Joshua 1 and Joshua 5, even between Joshua 1 and then the crossing, as that's recorded in Joshua 3 and 4, is a story told in Joshua 2. There, Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, says, when we heard what the Lord did in at the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt, and your more recent victories over Sihon and Og, the king of the Amorites, our hearts melted. In other words, she hears the story. 
she wasn't there herself. She hears the story of Yahweh's great victories. And then, shall we say, converts. I know, she says, Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. He is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. In other words, there's no other God. And what is what what does she do? She throws herself on the mercy of Yahweh and Israel, and rather than saying, oh, no, sorry, sorry, you're on our list of people to be annihilated. No. She's saved. In other words, you get the impression that anyone, can we speak humanly, but anyone who would have come forward and said, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, God would have shown the mercy. He would have shown the mercy. And therefore, the God of the Old Testament is not a bloodthirsty tyrant who, you know, willy-nilly is out to massacre anyone and everyone. No, he is a God who is rich in mercy, even to Canaanites, even to Canaanite prostitutes. This is very clear. And then when we come to the story of the Gibeonites, later on in the book of Joshua, the Gibeonites play a trick on Israel by saying, we are a people who have come from a great distance. Make a treaty with us so that we can live together in in peace. In fact, they were a people who were from the land of Canaan. Now, on the one hand, Israel violates the order of command by not consulting Yahweh. On the other hand, since Israel has given her word to the Gibeonites, no, we will not uh, kill you or annihilate you, Israel must keep her word. The Gibeonites are spared. In sparing them, then Israel would have been under obligation to, shall we say, catechize them, evangelize them, convert them, open their eyes to see the truth of Yahweh, the existence of Yahweh, and the goodness of his Torah. Because uh, the Torah is very clear that when sojourners come from another land and live among you, you shall not do them wrong. You shall treat them with love, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, foreigners uh, who came to the land of Israel, for whatever reason, were thoroughly permitted to come in and not be massacred because they were not the descendants of Jacob. Furthermore, another passage that, shall we say, stands in contrast to the story told in Joshua is, are all the regulations given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And there, uh, it makes clear that Israel is to have no fear of her enemies. Deuteronomy 20 assumes that when you go to battle against an enemy, you will win. But again, Israel is to be a holy people. The priest is to speak to the people. Priests would go into battle. Again, a symbol uh, of the holiness of the cause. And that always has to be front and center. Israel is a people who belongs to the Lord. The enemies are pagans. But Deuteronomy 20 deals with war against cities that are farther away. Farther away. We're not talking now there about war in the land of Canaan. And it says that when you come to a city that you intend to attack, you first, first offer them terms of peace. Yahweh doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn. And if they surrender, then you subject them to forced labor, but you do not massacre them. 
And even if they refuse the terms of peace, it's clear that the rules for war there have to be kept in mind because it reveals something about who Yahweh is. If you, When you conquer them, the men will be executed, but the women and children will be spared. They will put, be put to servitude and slavery, but you don't massacre the whole population. And this deals with cities that are far away. Therefore, I think what we can conclude from that is that the war against the Canaanites, as that's described in Joshua, is unique. It was not uh, prescriptions on how to meet every non-Israelite and kill them all and let God sort out, uh, sort them all out. No, it was a specific moment in redemptive history where the land that belongs to Yahweh and he's promised it to the Israelites, the land is to be cleared of the pagans. And yet, Joshua is clear that when pagans come forward and throw themselves on the mercy, on the mercy of the Lord, that they would be spared. Now, you ask the question, well, how does Jesus Christ fit in all this? Well, very clearly. Who converted Ahab, Rahab, Rahab's descendant? Jesus is saving his own mother. And it's her testimony that reminds the reader and reminds Joshua, the Lord has given this land to you. I know that the Lord has given you this land. Jesus is saving his own mother. And what goes on in the land, in this story told in Joshua, is a picture, it's a beautiful picture, of what is now true in the New Testament. God's people are promised the new heavens and the new earth. But the reception of the new heavens and the new earth comes through a process of judgment. The New Testament reveals that Jesus is the judge, and we shall all appear before him, where he will judge us according to what we've done in our works. And those who have thrown themselves on the mercy of Christ are clothed in his righteousness. The wicked will be banished. They will uh, go to the everlasting fire. But the warfare that we conduct in this day and age is not a warfare in which we're trying to take over a specific piece of geography. No. Abraham was the heir of the whole world, according to Romans. And therefore, the warfare we conduct today is not conducted with spears or swords. We are not to physically kill anyone. In the mission of the church, we have Jesus promised to be with us to the very end, Matthew 28, verse 20. And we arm ourselves with the spiritual equipment that Ephesians 6 describes. You know, the belt, uh, the belt, the breastplate, the helmet, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Because the kingdom of God is not of this world. It's in this world, and we're seeking to conquer this world not by physically killing our enemies, but rather by bringing them the gospel. You see, there's two ways to destroy your enemies. One would be physical death, but another way is to convert them. And therefore, in the preaching of the gospel, and we have the promise of the Holy Spirit to attend the preaching of the gospel, when hearts are changed, hearts of stone are replaced by hearts that are alive. What was your enemy and the Lord's enemy is now converted. He's put in a, he and she are put in different directions, serving the Lord, submitting to him, and seeking to live holy lives. And therefore, the story told in Joshua 
it it may make us uncomfortable, but again, God is a God who is holy. He will remove the wicked. And in this day and age, our goal still is to disciple the nations, bring them, um, as have them to submit to the holy administration as represented by baptism, to make them the followers and the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. This still is our uh, goal. Uh, the book of Joshua is a beautiful picture in Old Testament terms of what we are doing today as the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation portrays him as this uh, great warrior, victorious warrior king who goes out to conquer and still to conquer. Many thanks for Reverend Vanderhart and his insights into the conquest of Canaan, what it meant for Israel back then, and what it means for us as Christians today. Next time, Reverend Vanderhart and I sit down to talk about theophany. Never heard of it? (laughs) Tune in next time, and I am sure you'll be enlightened. For more episodes, you can find us on our website and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.